This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. GE14 was a monumental day in Malaysian history as the people voted out the incumbent Barisan National Government which had been at the helm of Malaysia for 60 years. However, the events that have transpired over the past couple of years, namely Lanka Sheraton, has made some people wonder, what exactly did GE14 accomplish? Did people actually change anything? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Dr. Francis Hutchinson. He's a senior fellow at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. Welcome to the show, Francis. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you very much for uh, having me. Now, Francis, as I mentioned in the introduction, GE14 was a monumental uh, moment in Malaysia's history, Malaysia's political history. How do you reflect on GE14, especially from the outside looking in? What would you say is the significance of the result? So I think at the most, most fundamental level, the result of GE14 was to show that a ruling coalition which had been in power for so long could be defeated and that a transition to another administration was possible. Now, from this side of history, following G14 and then the Sheraton move and the transfer of power from Muhyiddin Yassin to Ismail Sabri, this no longer looks so important. But before this, it was actually hard to envisage. So, of course, number one, you know, we have BN in power for six decades. And then the second, you have structural features in Malaysia's political system, like the first part of the post-parliamentary system short campaign periods, the ability of the government to dissolve parliament when circumstances are favorable, of course, within time limits, right. as well as things like the, you know, the influence over printed media that really tilted the playing field towards the incumbent. And then third, uh, you also have that in 2013, Pakatan Rakyat actually won the popular vote, but it didn't secure enough seats right, to take power. So this added to this impression of invincibility. So before, you know, 2018, it was hard to conceptualize this. And now it's much easier to consider. And from having a very stable and some would say overly static political context, you know, Malaysia is now in a situation where things are more fluid and competitive. You know, before we get um, deeper into what exactly changed um, after GE14, I want to discuss how we got to GE14 um, and beyond in the first place. Because, you know, people always say that political change is, is impossible until it actually happens. Then people look back and say that it was in inevitable. Um, if the result of GE15 was the sort of final piece of a chain of dominoes, what would you say was the first piece? So, I mean, of course, why were we where we were? Mm -hmm. So we had, you know, Barisan Nacional. Before that, it was the alliance that was able to craft together, you know, multi-ethnic uh, coalitions. It was able to pull candidates from different member parties. It was able to, to field them strategically, you know, matching the characteristics of the candidates with the constituency. Then, of course, it did have a very good record of economic management, and then it had all of the structural features that we've just talked about. But I think, you know, under, under this, there were a number of important structural changes. So the first is that since 1990, uh, Malaysia has been a majority urban country. And now this rate is above 70 percent. 
But when you look at much of Barisan Nacional, and particularly UMNO, it's culturally rooted in and it's focused on rural areas. So over time, the expectations that people have of their parliamentarians change from a more rural, small community context where you have like lots of contact with your parliamentarians and they're expected to kind of resolve very, very specific issues to kind of more policy and countrywide issues like public transport and the quality of the public administration. So the way you do politics and the topics that you focus on change. Right. The second is that while Malaysia has grown economically very rapidly since independence, the rate of growth has slowed over time as it grows richer. So since the financial crisis, you know, we've had a drop from around 7% on average per year to around 4 to 5%. Now, this is still very high, but it's less than before and is reflective of, you know, higher per capita income and also the economy changing more from simply, you know, producing commodities and producing manufacturers for export to much more looking at innovation and things like institutional quality and, you know, can people come out with new products and services? So there's less rapid growth. And then you have people that are now beginning to question, okay, uh, these people have been power. Uh, You know, things are good, but they're not that good. And you also have moments of crisis. So in this context, then you begin to look at uh, other alternatives. And last, the media landscape has changed, right? So away from traditional printed media and television, which are still important for many segments, but towards social media, you know, uh, online newspapers and so on. So this more diverse media landscape has made debate more lively and access to information much more open. So I think these three things, when you look at them, have contributed to a narrowing of the dominance of the incumbent. Right. So I want to look back in history for a bit. Um, you know, look at particularly uh, particular moments or, or, or decades, um, so to speak, that ultimately um, sort of uh, culminated in the results of, uh, of GE14, where Barisan National was eventually defeated. Because if we look at the beginning of the reformasi movement, we can go back all the way to 1998. And then if we look at, um, you know, 2008, uh, which was 10 years after 1998, um, you reached a point where where um, for the first time in Malaysian history, um, the opposition won five um, states, you know, when it comes to five states, uh, state governments. So I want to break down, you know, each of these chapters and see, you know, how how do you reflect on them? Let's start from 1998 to 2008, Francis. How do you reflect on these years? Thank you. I think this, you know, breaking down into periods is really useful. And Mm -hmm. I think you've hit the correct dates. So, You know, we had these sort of underlying drivers that Mm -hmm. make things more competitive that I've been talking about urbanization and so forth. But then, you know, following the Asian financial crisis, you have reformasi, you have the whole political upheaval that is unleashed by the economic situation in the beginning. And then you have something that happens very important in 1999. And, And this is actually where things you can see the beginning of the trend of things getting more competitive. Right. So if you look through the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, this is very much Barisan Nacional heyday, where it consistently secures between 80 to 90% of seats in parliament. These are huge, crushing majorities. Right. Now, of course, 
it doesn't mean that they secured 80 to 90 percent of the popular vote. But the first past the post parliamentary system magnifies their wins. But in the 1999 election, something interesting happens. So BN's share of parliamentary seats, okay, dips to 75%. Right. Now, yeah, this is still huge for many countries, but this is a step change downward from the situation that we see before. And of course, yes, we have reformacy, you have many uh, people leaving UMNO for PASS and the newly formed PKR, of course, on the back of reformacy. And then you have, I would argue, reading the political wins at the time and seeing that he could have either potentially lost the next election or had a very narrow majority, uh, Mahathir then decides that it's a good time to call it a day. Now, you have a transition to Abdullah Badawi, who because of he's more genial, more consensual, has an initial focus on anti-corruption, and this seems to kind of initially offer all the benefits of Barisa Nacional with less of the downside, right? So you have a huge leap in electoral fortunes in, in the elections of that year. And Barisa Nacional secures 90% of seats, which is historically only the second, or actually the second highest. The first the highest would have been 1955, right? right? When the alliance, you know, secures 51 out of 52 seats, right? So in this case, they could secure 90%. But, you know, the heady days soon give way to a bit of despondency, as it's clear that for structural reasons, in, you're dealing with a incumbency and the wider political context, as well as the culture within Barça Nacional and UMNO, Abdullah Badawi is unable to push through serious reforms. And it is on this note that you then have the 2008 elections and then the country enters a new political period. Right. So we entered this, the, you know, 2008 elections was monumental. Um, in the sense, like I just mentioned, uh, you know, about a minute ago, where, you know, the opposition, which was at that time past PKR and DAP, um, the, the opposition managed to sort of wrestle five states from Barisan National, mm -hmm. right? Um, PAS took two states, and then you got um, uh, Penang and uh, which, DAP, mm -hmm. Slango, which is PKR. And, and this was very monumental, right? Talk to me mm -hmm. about the periods of. 2008 till 2018. What happened during those years which ultimately led to the 2018 GE14 results? So I would say that this you know, period is what we can call the two-coalition model. Right. right. So uh, you have a pre-election agreement between mm -hmm. PKR, DAP and PAS to avoid three-cornered fights. So it wasn't a formal coalition but what you can actually see is they were copying, in certain ways, the same Barisan Nacional model. Right. So number one, you don't split your potential vote base, number one. Second, you can pull candidates. Now, let's go back to 2008 or before that. Actually, you don't have that many opposition candidates because it's not a very attractive proposition professionally or in any way, shape or form, right? So uh, difficult to get. So you, the ones that you have, you pull together, you see what you have, and then you can, third, <clears throat> match your constituency, your constituency with your candidate, right? So you can see, okay, this person is best place to fight here. So this is, you know, many of the same sort of, this has many of the same structural characteristics that the BN model has. So 
In 2008, and here, of course, I think we should also mention that, you know, you have the Bercy protests that begin in 2006. You have a number of them over the next decade. But one of the main things that they do is kind of really begin to highlight the inherent flaws or imbalances in the country's electoral system, right? That then this becomes part of the popular discourse and what people are looking at. Right. So in 2008, BN only secures 51.2% of the popular vote and 63% of seats. So look, we've gone from, you know, 80 to 90% down to 63%. And as you mentioned, you have Pakatan Rakyat uh, getting five state governments, two urban, two rural, one mixed. And these two developments are super important. So first, BN no longer has a two-thirds majority in parliament. Now, this means it cannot unilaterally decide to amend the Constitution when it wants, number one. Number two, it cannot increase the number of parliamentary seats. Now, it can push for redelineation, favorable to its interests, but it cannot increase the number of seats. So this is very important. And second, Pakatan Rakyat now controls a number of state governments, and this means several things. Mm -hmm. First, it has a training ground for tomorrow's national leaders. As prior to this, how are you going to get experience? So you actually have to look for people outside, attract them to join. And again, as we mentioned, this is a bit difficult. Right. And then you can also start accumulating a track record. You can then start saying to voters, look, we've been in charge of this state government. You know, we've done these, uh, implemented these reforms, so on. Right. And it hasn't been a disaster. Mm -hmm. Key. Right. So... We have some notion of governance. And second, uh, as we've been discussing, you can now attract better quality candidates. And, you know, you can be in opposition. You have some possibility of employment. You can work in a government office. You can supervise GLCs. You can supervise projects. And so all of a sudden, you begin to see a different type of person entering, you know, uh, the parliamentary opposition. And then this tendency continues in 2013. So Pakatan Rakyat wins the popular vote, but Barisan Nacional retains 60% of parliamentary seats. Right. And then this is due to things like malapportionment, which means that certain seats in rural areas with fewer people, you know, have a disproportionate number of seats. But you can see this downward trend in Barisan Nacional's majority continuing. Now, in 2018, of course, we have uh, Barisan Nacional's defeat. But you can see, actually, even the incoming coalition mm -hmm. only has 54.5% of the seats. So we go from 60% down to 54.5%. So now we've traveled a long way since the 1990s or even 2004, when it's between 80 to 90%. Now we're in a new era where Malaysia's political context has become much more competitive. Now, I also want to talk to you about... Um, a certain breakup that happened in between, um, you know, the, the years of um, 2013 and to 2018, which is the fallout um, of, of past with DAP and PKR. Because up mm -hmm. until that point, um, especially when we look 
um, like we talk about the flipping of five state governments and and things like that, PAS was an integral um, um, sort of component to Pakatan Rakyat. In fact, when we talk to um, even the most progressive of activists, um, when we talk to um, veteran um, leaders from Bursay, um, when we talk to people who organized the ISA rally, um, you know, that, that forced Najib's hand to abolish ISA while he was in power, um, many people talk about... Um, you know, how integral past was um, to all these movements because nobody could mobilize the grassroots the way past could. What was the significance of past's fallout with DAP and PKR? So I think the fallout had consequences mm-hmm. for past itself, for Pakatan Harapan or Pakatan Rakyat, which then became Pakatan Harapan, and then for Malaysia's political context more widely. Mm-hmm. So first, you know, PAS has long had its own internal connect, uh, tensions you know, between the more conservative and progressive wings. And it was very much, you know, the sort of more progressive wing that was much more open to collaborating with uh, PKR and DAP. Following the implosion of Pakatan Rakyat, PAS underwent its own internal cleansing process. And the conservative part of the party took control and, you know, pushed out the progressives. And the progressives went on to found Parti Amana Negara, mm-hmm. or Amana, and due to its outlook, has a closer philosophical match with PKR and the DAP. So then, of course, with Amana, uh, PKR and the DAP found Pakatan Harapan in 2015. And while we cannot say that there are no tensions within Pakatan Harapan, their philosophical bonds are much stronger and less conflictual than they were previously when PAS was there. So I think from an internal point of view, one source, not the only one, but of internal tension has been resolved and it's more cohesive. Now, from PAS's point of view, it then also needs to question itself because one thing that we notice is that when it runs in elections by itself, outside of certain pockets, it actually doesn't do well. Right. So it then needs to say, okay, look, I want to contest. I want to, I have national ambitions, but look, outside of Kelantan, Tringanu, and a few pockets here and there, it's very difficult because of baggage. Perhaps people have certain images. So it does better as part of a coalition. So then this leads to discussions with Barisa Nacional, the formation of Mofakat Nacional, but then eventually... Ikatan Nacional that we see today. So this breakup then set the stage for the three coalition contexts that we have at present. And so this declining parliamentary majority that we've seen coming down instead of being disputed by two coalitions is now disputed by three coalitions. On the show with me today is Dr. Francis Hutchinson, Senior Fellow at the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute. After the break, I ask him what lies at the heart of our nation's political battles today. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Francis Hutchinson. He's the Senior Fellow at the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute and we're talking about, or we're reflecting rather on the significance of GE14. So Francis, after GE14, um, 
especially if you were a Pakatan Harapan supporter, there was a sort of feeling of um, renewed energy among the mass- Malaysian masses. Fast forward two years later, Lanka Sheraton happened and I think regardless of which side of the political aisle you fall on, it felt like, you know, elite-level musical chairs. Um, what what power does the regular rakyat have um, um, in shaping politics? This is all happening without um, the people's consultation with the people and so on and so forth. Many felt disillusioned, disenfranchised, wondering what the purpose of voting even is. Now... Talk to me about the changes we've actually seen since GE14. Because despite, um, you know, the, the, the sort of disillusionment and people feeling that nothing changed and what's the point, things actually changed, didn't it? Talk to me about what the G- results of GE14 ultimately accomplished. Number one, the possibilities of a change in government administration are now more possible. They've been normalized. And so it's not just what happened in 2018, but as you mentioned, Lanka Sheraton, and then, of course, also the the transition from Moyedin Yassin to Ismail Sabri. So now changing leaders and changing governing coalitions is a lot less of a big deal than it used to be mentally. And is that a good Uh, thing? In general, I think that this is a good thing. Uh, Relatedly, and and I guess sort of uh, structurally, We've continued now, and it's actually been exacerbated, the narrow parliamentary majorities that the governing coalitions have. So under Moyedin uh, Yassin, around 50%, and around and with Ismail Sabri, 52%. So very narrow parliamentary majorities. Now, what then begins to happen? Uh, your people that are in cabinet and in the ruling coalition need to be very cognizant of the fact that while they are in power today, that may not be the case tomorrow. And then within this context, we begin to have unheard of things like a memorandum of understanding between the government and Pakatan Harapan. We have a commitment to equal constituency allocation funds, which of course traditionally is not the case. If you are in uh, opposition, you either don't get allocations or you get minimal amount. Um, We have the move towards anti-hopping legislation for the stability of the ruling coalition. We also have Undi 18 and automatic voter registration. And then we actually also have uh, the beginnings of a different cycle of state government elections, which can be exhausting if you have elections every year. But, uh, you know, if perhaps managed a little bit better, I think uh, could be very good for the country. Um, and so these contexts or these sorry, changes are begin to be passed because of this very competitive environment. So in this context, I think that these are quite good changes and ones that you never would have seen if you have an incumbent in power with a huge, huge, huge majority. Right. On the flip side, though, Francis, um, Francis there's a lot of things that um, perhaps people were hoping um, mm-hmm. would change that didn't change. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. couldn't be changed by Pakatan Harapan in the 22 months that they were in power? Okay, so the first thing, I think one thing was changed that needed to be changed. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with expectations and promises. Right. So Malaysia had never had a political transition before. And people had unrealistic expectations of what was achievable. 
And Malaysia is a context where you've got a very extensive government, you've got a huge civil service, and so, you know, the government is very present in your life. So consequently, I think these two things, not having had a change before and due to having very, very, uh, you know, huge expectations of the government led to, you know, kind of people really, really, really expecting, you know, a very radical uh, changes from day one. Uh, secondly, you know, opposition politicians were also operating under the assumption that they would not be elected or it was very likely. Right. So they made a range of promises. Now, I think when you look at the campaign manifestos, I think people are more realistic and sober about what they can achieve. And this is a necessary process. Now, I do think that there were some uh, achievements in the 22 uh, months. You know, of course, all the groundwork for the enactment of 1D18 and automatic voter registration took place. Things like lowering of the cost of the East Coast rail line, very, very expensive. We had legal procedures against certain politicians. We had the appointment of senior officials in the judiciary, as well as cleaning up the electoral rolls. I think this, of course, is fundamental. It's not very exciting, but it is necessary. But of course, number one, 22 months is not a long period of time. And number two, like we were discussing before, if you like the kind of philosophical premise that one can say Amana, DAP, PKR share, of course, had to kind of incorporate Bersatu and a lot of uh, senior leaders formerly part of UMNO. So you had a certain philosophical disconnect. And this also limited the horizons of what was possible in that period of time. I want to dig a little deeper on uh, about this particular um, instance that we're talking about, right? Because um, at, at one point, um, you know, we, we talked about how, you know, that the feeling at one point was changing a government would be impossible. Like mm-hmm. if prior to, to even a day before GE14, when you were asked, if you ask people would be, be able to change the government, everyone would say, you are out of your mind, there is no way, right? And then it happened, and so there was this idea that, you know, as you rightfully pointed out, there was this, this feeling that, okay, something is going to change. Something big is going to change because we did, the, the people did the impossible, right? Or something that was thought to be impossible. But yet today, when we fast forward all the way to 2022, we are still talking about Najib. We are still talking about Zahid. We are still talking about Zahid versus Anwar versus Muhyiddin versus Mahade. These are the same political personalities that have been dominating our headlines even before GE14. In fact, they've been dominating our headlines since the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. How is this possible, Francis? How did a major change happen, but yet it feels like nothing much has changed at all? All right. So I think you're touching on something very important. So I've been following Malaysian politics for 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And the faces and the people and the names that you've mentioned are the same ones. And it's like uh, watching friends on TV, right? They're <laughs> always there, same people. And then you've got the complicated alliance, you know, right. alliances and the backstory, same thing. So up until 2018, the institutional context and the rules of the game were the same ones, and there was very little change. And so if you compare the Asian financial crisis and what happened in Malaysia and Indonesia, right, 
Malaysia changed relatively little. Indonesia changed fundamentally right away. So I would say that the institutional changes that Malaysia had pending were put off. Now, if we go and review the past four years in Indonesia, very little has changed, but so much has now changed in Malaysia. So yet, many people at the highest level remain the same, but the rules of the game that they play have changed fundamentally. So these same people that you mentioned either need to rebrand themselves or they will be replaced. And my feeling is that come the next general election, the personalities that we will be talking about will be substantially different. So it's like your friends that you watch on TV. Now, all of a sudden, it has gravitated to Netflix and you've got a new producer and you've got a new audience. So, you know, uh, Rachel and Ross and all of these guys (laughs) need to rebrand themselves. Otherwise, they're going to be replaced. I'll be better off democratically. You talk about, um, you know, observing and studying Malaysian politics for 20 years. Looking from the outside in, is Malaysia going through a transitional phase? How important of a juncture are we in right now, Francis? As you've kind of highlighted, right, we've got certain chapters in the country's political history, and we're entering a new one. Um, So we've had a number of reforms that have passed that are broadly positive. We have a more fluid political system. We have more competition. We have more consideration of the other side. But beyond that, it's difficult to see. So are we going to continue with a three coalition model as we see now? Or are we going to see one coalition absorbing the other? Or are we going to see coalitions that have a kind of agreement to contest as one unit in the run-up to the election, but with the understanding that it's a free-for-all after that? Um, Is it going to be more unstable? Are we going to have to learn? Here, yes, I think we're going to have to learn to deal with narrow parliamentary majorities which of course make anti-hopping important and also make this concept of stable, fixed parliamentary terms that is being talked about also interesting? Or could we even have minority governments? Now, could it be that Malaysia becomes more like Belgium or Italy or Japan that have frequent changes of leadership, but where the civil service is autonomous and is able to continue to work and keep public services going? And I think over the past 60 years, we've had a real politicization of the civil service right. because of incumbency, right? But now, when you don't know who's going to be in power next time, then all of a sudden, you have a change in the mentality of your civil servants who begin to say, you know what? You can be here four years. You can be here five years. I will always be here. So you know what? Thank you very much. I'm going to continue on with sort of the longer term horizon of planning, and I'm going to be less partisan to short-term political imperatives. So I think that, you know, this could be interesting. One important thing is that oil revenue is declining. So back in the 70s, back in the 1980s, this really underpinned a lot of development spending and what could be invested in infrastructure. And if we go back, of course, to the 90s and KLIA and the Petronas Twin Towers and all of these things, right? So this trend continued up until recently, but is now reaching its limits. 
to give you one statistic, in 2009, 40% of government revenue came from oil and gas. Right. A lot. 19%. One nine. So the government now needs to start looking for alternative sources of revenue. And it is most likely that it's going to be some form of tax on people. Now, there's a large literature and political science that argues that once governments start taxing people directly, the relationship between citizens and the government changes. Now, you can see this with GST. Mm -hmm. So once people start seeing prices going up and it's itemized on their receipts when they buy shampoo, certain types of soap, certain types of prepared food that are necessities, the next question is, if I'm paying this out of my pocket directly, is this money going where it should? And this will be a driver that will increase the airtime given to things like the quality of governance, poverty, financial management, and anti-corruption. You know, we talk about Malaysia being in a transitionary phase. What are we transitioning to beyond, let's just say, having more competition? I'm wondering if, you know, when we look at the results of GE14, you can say that it was, um, some have said that it's more of, rather than a radical shift, um, um, you know, away from, um, you know, a particular system, it was more of different cogs on the same wheel or perhaps some um, same cogs just in, in different parts of the wheel, a realignment of the elites, um, if, if you will. I'm wondering if, you know, we are in a point right now where Malaysia can start having a more ideological um, in terms of um, political economy, um, political battles, rather than, you know, just this race and religion stuff, where the economic ideas between um, different political blocs are more or less the same. But, you know, you have, uh, okay, one is multiracial and then one is more Islamic and, and things like that. I'm wondering... Can we transition to a phase where there is a sort of political battle between the far left, the center left, the center right, and, and so on and so forth, um, the way we see in, let's say, countries like New Zealand? So certainly, I think a lot of people would argue that, you know, there's not enough attention to policy. Right. So as you mentioned, there's a lot of focus on identity and things like that. Right. And consequently, I think a lot of the, the finer points and details of policy tend to be put aside. So I think going forward for some of the reasons that I've mentioned, once all of a sudden, you know, 40 percent of what is spent no longer comes out of the ground, much more comes from your pocket. This, of course, will push you to ask what is being spent, how much is being spent, do I agree, and so forth. This is one thing. Um, another thing that perhaps is a little bit pointy-headed, but I think is actually also quite important, goes back to this idea of having uh, different schedules for state governments. So, as you know, up until recently, with the exception of Sarawak that had its own electoral cycle, you know, you would have national elections and then you have concurrent state government elections. Right. 
Now, why it's becoming much more different, you know, much uh, more, I wouldn't say complicated, but, you know, at this point in time, we're only having three state governments right. uh, having their own elections. Now, next year, you and I will be having similar conversations about, you know, the elections uh, in some states. Right. Now, this, I think, number one, has a couple of effects. Uh, the first is, I think it's good because it then gives space and time to discuss local issues rather than you know everything being bundled up together and then many times voters voting concurrently and kind of mixing up state and national elections so this gives more time and space for local issues it also i think to your point about you know identity gives another rallying point hmm. i think it's healthy that people you know, define themselves as being, you know, from Tringanu or Johor right. or Selangor or, you know, Sarawak and Sabah. I think this is another way to cut the cake and for people to relate to each other. The other thing is, of course, then, and this is one of the benefits of federalism, is that you have more room and scope for policy innovation. So, you know, whether it be for a limited period, you know, Penang subsidizing uh, buses to take people from the mainland to buy in La Paz to then decongest, you know, the traffic system, whether it be payments that actually began in the state governments of Penang and Selangor before being rolled out into Brim, right? So that's an interesting case of policy transfer. Mm -hmm. You then have more of this. And lastly, coming to, to something that I think we should talk about, and that is like the internal culture within political parties you have a more diverse or more diverse sets of pathways to national level office. Now, what do I mean by this? If we again look at Indonesia, which following 1997, the Asian financial crisis went through a far reach, reaching decentralization uh, process, you can have someone like Jokowi that within his own political party, PDIP is not particularly important. But he was able to ascend being first, you know, in, in charge of Solu and then going to becoming governor of Jakarta and then from there going to the top top job. Mm -hmm. And then you actually have a kind of interesting dynamic there uh, with uh, Megawati being, you know, the president of the party and Jokowi not a bit like sort of, you know, Zahid and Ismail now, which is only a recent development. Right. But my point is then this is an alternative pathway that then shakes up the political system and gives more room to grooming tomorrow's leaders. What lies at the heart of the nation's political battle today? What exactly? We talk about three coalitions in the peninsula. Why are they three in terms of what people are fighting about? What exactly are people fighting for in Malaysia? Let me touch on a slightly different point that okay. I think does still link back to what mm -hmm. we're talking about. And, and uh, you raised this in your earlier question when you, you, you asked, you know, why do we still see so many of the same people? Right. So I think actually one of the subtexts of what we're fighting about today is actually generational change. Right. And so I'd like to talk, touch on, on UMNO for a minute. Um, so, you know, UMNO is, is very disciplined. It has a very rigid internal structure. And, you know, there's a certain hierarchy. You have to pay your dues. And it's actually more important to be a popular within the party than outside. 
Right. And, you know, you need to climb the ladder. And this is actually why you see so many of their, their candidates, uh, to put it delicately, not, not being super young, right? Right. Um, and, and this is difficult to change because it's due in part to how much power is centralized in the position of the party president. And this is a legacy first of Tunku Abdurrahman and secondly of Mahathir mm -hmm. when both of them were omnipresent. So they did a lot of kind of changes in the rules of the game that made UMNO change from an umbrella organization to a very, very rigid uh, and centralized uh, organization. Now, what I find very interesting and quite surprising is, yes, of course, uh, following 2018, Najib Razak had to step down from the position of party president, but there was no internal process of introspection and questioning why they lost which you would think would flow from such a huge defeat. Right? So where did we go wrong? Why did we lose? What do we need to change? Actually, you can see, of course, number one, much of the discourse is about RSN Nacional reclaiming its rightful right. Um, going back to the glory days, mm -hmm. right? So uh, there's almost like, you know, why, why, why did 2018 happen was not dealt with. Right. And we can see this culture actually that is so strong that we can see Kyrie Jamaluddin, who many would say is the most popular politician right now, and certainly the most popular UMNO politician, who needs to eat humble pie and give way to someone more senior than him. Mm -hmm. Now, from a kind of organic point of view, let's think where UMNO and BN would be if following the 2018 loss there had been introspection and reform and cleansing. I would argue they would be in, in a much better position than they are today. Right. So I think we, we see the remnants of the old elements of the new kind of coexisting at this point in time. Um, so I, I think, yeah, that you, you kind of have this struggle that is going on within Barça Nacional, but I think you can also talk about generational change in Pericata Nacional as well as in Pacatan Harapa. So I think that this is quite important and this goes back to, I think, our previous this question. And my feeling is, you know, in five years time, the next general election, we, we come around to have a discussion. I think maybe we might see the same names, we might see the same coalitions, but I think the faces will be there. Absolutely. And before we wrap this conversation up, Francis, we are just a few days away from the 15th general elections in Malaysia. Would you have a final message on the road to GE? So actually, I would like to, to mention something mentioned by mm -hmm. Professor William Case, who's a, a professor at, at Nottingham. And, and I think he made a very good point in an article yesterday that I think really kind of spoke to me. And that is that, you know, in Malaysia, while the rules of the game are tilted towards the incumbent, still the rules of the game are respected. And so whoever wins, there is going to be an orderly, peaceful transfer of power. And no one is going to be saying after the day that the elections were rigged or were stolen. And in this context, I really do think Malaysians in general should be congratulated for being very sophisticated. And on that note, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Francis. 
a pleasure. That was Dr. Francis Hutchinson. He's a senior fellow at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Today I Learned podcast. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.